After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to today's edition of Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Eddie Cahill, joining me is Joe Hilti, and we are here to talk about Super Eagles. What we then was have the Hoffman of Vink. When I say room, I mean like quite low. There is a desk in here with a computer and a microphone, and that's essentially what I'm working with. So uh, I apologize in advance. Uh, but yes, uh, you know, sometimes with this quick turnaround and also the nature of Super Regionals, right, which is that, like we talked about on the preview episode, that there are some of these supers and and there these, I think there weren't too many examples, I guess maybe Ole Miss over Southern Miss where it's just like two games, bang, bang, and a team is gone and you look up and you're like, what even happened here? Um, you know, maybe Texas A&M over Louisville felt a little like that because it was Friday, Saturday, but regardless between that and the quick turnaround, supers do sometimes feel like they get a little bit short shrift in terms of us really like looking at them and examining them and evaluating them. And they are small samples, but you compare that with regionals, which is like four teams and games all day and chaos and all over the place. And teams can play five games in a weekend and supers are just a different format. And so they can sometimes get a little bit lost in the shuffle. So we're, we're going to buck against that today by actually looking back on what was a, a good weekend, all things considered. I think it was, it was a fun weekend. The weather, we had some weather in some places, but it was mostly minimal weather disruptions, which is, which is good not always the case. Um, and so now we go into an Omaha that at least for the first couple of days, there appears like it's going to be hotter than the surface of the sun, but, um, that's the risk we, we take every year. Before we get into this, I have like, I have a super regional like format complaint slash question if like, maybe I'm the weird one here, but why are we running these Friday through Monday? Like if we're opening Omaha on the following Friday, like we you had super regionals and uh, like 11 to 11 30 p.m eastern on monday night omaha starts friday at two o'clock eastern um the teams have to be there on thursday for practice and opening ceremonies like why is there such a short gap there why why are we not running everything friday to to Sunday. Like I get that there's only so much that can be done here. Like regionals have to have to have time for regionals to finish. Like that's whatever. But like, I just, I don't really, first of all, I hated waiting around most of yesterday for more baseball. Just felt like a a huge hangover from the weekend to like, Oh, right. There's still more games to be played here. So that wasn't great. But even setting that aside, like this now quick turnaround for the teams that are involved, 
like I, I really feel for. Yeah, I, I think I just generally, before we talk details, um, because I know like the easy thing to do is to ask a bunch of questions. Well, how would this work or that work? Like, I will just generally co-sign the idea of doing a more compact super regional round if we're going to continue with the CWS starting on Friday, um, which I think I assume, because like the thing about it is like- yeah, they didn't make this for, it, it, it was not a change made intended just for one year. Like this is intended to be the format moving forward. Right. And there are, it should be said on the back end, there are benefits to this new format. Um, so I'm sure we will talk about that as the, as the, the week couple, next couple of weeks go on, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I will co-sign generally the idea that just doing them all Friday to Sunday would be a little bit, a little bit better. The, the Monday kind of the games hanging over to Monday is a little bit, is a little bit odd and kind of does it, does a disservice to those teams because you don't, you don't get any benefit from being, you know, theoretically, if you're on a Saturday, Monday, super, it is a little bit of a benefit to you, especially if you had to play on Monday of regional weekend, um, because you get like an extra day of rest, right? You don't get really get that benefit. Like, yes, you get an extra day to not play, but to, to what Teddy just said, like you all have to be there on the same day because you have to be there for opening ceremonies and the full practice day. So you're Auburn and you're on the West coast with a game. I assume that, they're not going home. Like, why would you, why yeah, would you fly to Auburn you? today? Cause they couldn't leave last night. I'm sure they would have had to leave today as we record this on Tuesday. So you're flying all the way back to Auburn and then you're going to fly to, to Omaha. I mean, I would guess not. I know UCSB, uh, like, I just know this cause I remember talking to Andrew Checkins about it. Like when they went to and won their super regional at Louisville, they didn't go back to Santa Barbara and they won theirs in two days and they won it on Saturday. They had more time to do it. And they still were like, well, we're not flying across the country right now like we're just gonna go to omaha yeah yeah i mean you just it is there's no benefit to being on the saturday monday because you're just like you know if you're if you're like i said if you're auburn um you know stanford was at home so like okay that one's not uh not that big a deal but yeah if you're auburn and you're already out there on the west coast you're not gonna crisscross to come back probably so i mean imagine if uconn had won like stanford to stores is a that's a really long trip yeah. And there's a reason why, by the way, I mean, so in this format, right. So let's say, I mean, Auburn's a great example because they've been on the road this whole, this, well, not this whole time, but like they, so they had the regional, but I mean, just like they've been on the road now by the time they're done with Omaha, like even if they have a short stay in Omaha, like they're going to have been on the road together basically without any break for two, three weeks. And, you know, there are teams in your Notre Dame is another example, like Notre Dame is probably the best example because they actually have been on the road the, you know, in the last two weeks, plus going on the road to Omaha. And these teams, by the time their Omaha runs are over, have been just on the road basically um, for weeks now. And so when, when teams get to the end of the College World Series and it's particularly emotional, and yes, some of that is the stakes. But I do think as, as much as, as easy as it can be sometimes to kind of be a cynic and roll your eyes at kind of the togetherness and my brothers and, and all that kind of stuff, like I can, it does have like a little bit of a summer camp kind of feel to it where like, hey, school is over for most everyone. I guess there are probably some exceptions there, but, you know, it's just baseball. We're on the road. We're doing all this together. We've seen these people now more than anybody else in our lives. Uh, really since February, but especially these last few weeks. And so when that comes to an end, it really is kind of an abrupt change because they've basically been living a professional baseball lifestyle <laughs> for the last three or four weeks of the season. So um, in this this format, to kind of circle it back, like this format where it's such a quick turnaround just kind of exacerbates that where 
like, Hey, you, you know, congrats on winning your super regional, like let's pack your bags. And now you're going to go to a different city and you're going to wake up in a hotel room again. And you're going to have to play the most important baseball games of your lives in like 72 hours. It, um, incredibly cramped, um, schedule, but it is what it is. Alrighty. So enough of my complaints about the format. Uh, I'll have more of those as we, as we move along, I am sure. Uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get to the games. And I guess there's no place to start. Um, but in Knoxville, number one, overall seed, Tennessee hosting Notre Dame, Notre Dame wins in three games for the third straight season. The number one overall seed does not make it out of super regionals. I said it a lot last week. We ran through all of the ways in which I thought Notre Dame was capable of beating Tennessee, why they would potentially beat Tennessee. And then at the end, I said, but like Tennessee's still the favorite. And in the end, all of those ways that I talked about, I feel like did come to fruition this weekend. Tennessee just wasn't able to overcome them. Um, Like almost if you go back and you listen to it, to what Joe and I said, not just the ways I mentioned, because Joe threw in one that actually did, I think, make a key difference as well. Um, You know, the running game, the volatility and emotion that Tennessee plays with, like coming back against them, the getting punched in the face for the first time or or experiencing some adversity for the first time in a long time. How are you going to respond to that? Uh, the experience factor of Notre Dame, like all of these things came to bear and, uh, and also like the, the multiple looks that Notre Dame can give you on the mound. The fact that they're not going to just try and approach this, like here's our starter for six innings and here's a reliever. And then here's a closer. Like the fact that they were going to mix and match and be able to do that. Like all of those things came to bear. Um, so Joe, I'm feeling kind of smart, but also like this was still a significant upset. Like I had a coach text me that, why are they calling this such a big upset? Like Notre Dame's a really good team. And like, they are. And like, I, I crafted a way like these ways for them to win this, this super regional. I thought they had a very good chance of going to Knoxville and winning. But on, on the other hand, like Tennessee had lost seven times going into this, this weekend, they were at home, a place where they'd lost like twice this season. Uh, yeah. It, it was still, it is a massive upset. It's just an upset that, you could see coming. Yeah. I mean, uh, of the teams that, I mean, look, <laughs> we talk about the unfairness to, uh, and I think this goes back to a conversation that they had on the a podcast that we reference quite a bit here, that CBS Ion college basketball podcast where Gary Parrish and Matt Norlander, when they were talking to during the NCAA tournament about how like Loyola Chicago, not from this past tournament, but the one before it, where they get matched up with Illinois because uh, Loyola is under and that not only messes up Loyola Chicago, it's also not really fair to Illinois, right? And so I think this was that where Notre Dame not hosting, like, sure, it hurts Notre Dame. Um, you know, and even if you were, I mean, if they were going to be the well, yeah, host, I, so they, I've, I've seen this argument, and like, yes, I it, it seems clear that the committee viewed them as team number 17. So it's not so much that they weren't hosting. It was that the committee viewed them as team number 17. I think it's fair to say they saw them as 17 because they very randomly got sent to Statesboro. Like they didn't have to go there. Oklahoma could have gone there. Uh, They chose to send Notre Dame there. And so I believe that to mean they saw them as team number 17. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess if they were always going to see Tennessee, if even if they were team 16 and hosted, but the point being is that, 
they this was a tough draw for Tennessee too. <laughs> um, getting getting there were two seeds there in the field that were much softer. There were, you know, um, there were one seeds that were probably softer ultimately that the Tennessee could have been matched up opposite. And um, they got Notre Dame, a team that's old and believes themselves and was playing uh, angry because of falling short last year um, because of, you know, not being seated properly um, because they knew it was their last ride. And, and frankly, probably because they were playing Tennessee, right? I mean, there is the thing of, it is true when teams talk about, you know, as the clear number one team, you're going to get everyone's best shot. Like that is something you can't really measure. However, I, I do think Tennessee in particular, that's not just any number one team. That's Tennessee, a team that is swaggering around the field, a team that is going to, you know, most often is going to beat you and then tell you about how they're going to beat you and then talk to you about beating you after they've beaten you. And that's just how they play. And that's not a value judgment. I've been on record several times as saying, I actually, on the scale, I tend to not have too much of a problem um, you know, F bombs toward the umpire, like, okay, that's a little different, but like generally the swaggering and the celebrating all that stuff doesn't really, doesn't really bother me. Um, but still you have to understand that that is going to draw something out of the opponent. And I think you kind of saw that a little bit with Notre Dame, a team that I mentioned before the, the, the super regional that like, this is a team that plays with sharp elbows too. Like it's not, these aren't soft guys, which I think maybe the, some of the name association with Notre Dame might maybe miscast some of these guys, but it's a, it was, it's a pretty hard nosed blue collar group. Um, and link Jarrett, you know, coaches with some fire. And even though you might not think so just looking at him, you know, he's, he's not outwardly outward with it, but you know, I think all those things kind of combined to give Notre Dame a little bit of a, a little bit of an edge there in Tennessee, obviously just didn't play. It's, it's best baseball for whatever reason. And we can sit here and really dissect the stuff like, which I'm not that interested in doing, but we could really dissect the stuff. Like, did they leave chase burns in too long and, and all that jazz. But I think ultimately it was just a Notre Dame team that was ready for this moment. And they caught Tennessee on a weekend when Tennessee wasn't at its sharpest. And that's, that's all it really takes in super regionals. We talk about the format and that's one of the brutal parts about the super regional format is if you, if you come out with your B plus game instead of your A game, like you might just lose if your other if the other team has their A game, and I think that's kind of what we saw. Yeah, for me, Tennessee just got outplayed this weekend, and some of that's the like Notre Dame found a couple holes, like the running game. Now the running game didn't work perfectly, but you know they stole a couple runs, like almost literally they stole the first run. On, I think that was on Sunday. Um, Jack Zyska stole two bases and then scored on a ground out, like. Um, you know, that is the running game coming to bear, but they had runners thrown out. There were times where the aggression didn't work. Um, so like they found a hole and they exploited it to the best of their advantage, best of their ability, but really they just played better than Tennessee did this weekend. Blade Tidwell was not at his best on Friday and they lost, um, you know, the chase burns. Did he get left in too long? Did he not? Whatever. Like he got beat like your opening day starter, your freshman, like he'll he'll be a freshman, all American, Uh, your freshman, all American got beat. Um, You know, you didn't find a way to beat Jack Finley ever. You know, he pitched two games and and he, you you had no answer for him. Like Alex Rayo just kind of beat you in the box. Um, On Friday, you got beat at your own game, Tennessee homered four times or uh, Notre Dame homeward four times. I, so they, they, there's no one thing I can point to and say like, well, this is what happened to Tennessee. Maybe the pressure got to them. Maybe. 
there were times where it did seem like they were either playing tight or reacting to the pressure. Uh, you saw that at the very end of the game uh, on Sunday, you know, Drew Gilbert gets thrown out trying to move up, um, you know, in a game where he's, they're down four runs. Like that's, that's just kind of like a dumb mental mistake that you make because you're just trying anything to get, get back in the game. Like it's a good aggressive kind of mistake, but it's a dumb mistake to make. Notre Dame was allowed to extend their lead. They were up four to three, um, you know, after they hit the home runs against Burns on Sunday. Notre Dame was allowed to extend the lead because Tennessee didn't play great defense. Um, you know, just little things that they hadn't done all season that, that suddenly came to bear that, in my mind, you know, probably are a result of them facing their own mortality for the first time all season. But at the same time, it wasn't like that all weekend long. They played just fine on Saturday with um with dolander on the mound and again you know facing elimination it was just these little moments that it happened and and i think we do have to joe reference the f-bombs to the umpire we do have to to mention on friday drew drew gilbert gets himself thrown out of the game a game in which tennessee is losing at the time uh because he's arguing balls and strikes very demonstrably with the umpire like he turns faces the umpire and says the f word multiple times on video it, it sure seems like that's what happened we don't have audio but amateur lip reading would, would indicate that's what happened and then in the aftermath of that like as he gets thrown out uh both tony vitello and pitching coach frank anderson come storming out of the dugout and you would expect to see the manager the, the head coach come storming out of the dugout to try and save his player it's what you're supposed to do. You don't expect to see the pitching coach do that when it's a hitter that it's happening with, but Frank Anderson did it and he got himself ejected in the process because that was his second ejection of the season. He gets suspended for three games. So they don't have him for the rest of the weekend. And that means that a, he's not there to talk with Tony Vitello about pitching changes, but he's also not there to call pitches. And I think you do have to wonder, does Sunday go differently if Frank Anderson is in the dugout, not, ne- not necessarily do they go and get Chase Burns after the David Lamana home run that tied the game or in the middle of the at bat after Jack Brannigan pulled a, a, a ball foul uh, that would have gone for a home run if it had straight, stayed fair. Tony Vitello mentioned post game that he should have at that moment after Brannigan pulled the ball foul, gone and gone Chase Burns mid at bat. You know, maybe Frank Anderson's in the dugout and they do it. But also maybe they don't, but Frank Anderson just calls pitches in a different way and they don't give up a home run either to Lamana or to Brannigan. Um, I, I, I just think you, I, I can't escape thinking that maybe things would have been different in that situation. They survived having Drew Gilbert suspended on Saturday. I don't know that they survived the, the Frank Anderson three-game suspension. Yeah, that's where, you know, I thought there was always a chance it was going to go like this. You know, I was, I was there during the Alabama series when, you know, they, they, the Vitello, you know, bump incident and Frank Anderson, and he got tossed out of the same game. And, you know, I just always thought this was on the table and I, you know, we will never truly know if that had, you know, an impact or not. We'll never be able to, to test, you know, AB test that if you will, but um, it is possible that, that what you're positing is, is the case. And, you know, this is what that the intensity they have and, and the way they kind of go about uh, the game can, you know, th- there was always this risk is what I'm saying. And it's just, you kind of have to understand that's what comes with the territory. And so 
um, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent on what, how the umpire handled it. Um, I mean, first of all, you, you just can't, you can't say the things that it looks like were said to the umpire and expect to not get thrown out. I don't know in what world that does. Now I'm not on the field with these things, but it's my understanding that you can't say those kinds of things and expect to stay in the game. So, you know, not in the college game, not in a high school game, not in a major league game. You can't, yeah. you can't look at the umpire and swear him and art and tell him that he's in a terrible job. Expect to stay in the game. You can tell the umpire he's doing a terrible job while you're facing the pitcher. You can swear the umpire like you can't do it all together. If you do it, I don't know what you expect in any umpire to in that scenario. Like the, you're almost giving them no choice because if if they don't do something, they're just like it's open season on them at that point. Yeah, I this yeah yeah the idea that there was any like ambiguity on what should have happened there but and maybe maybe i'm making like a no one's making that counter argument but uh you can find some people i'm sure yeah i'm sure someone is making that (laughs) argument but um there shouldn't be any surprise with it going that way yeah i mean to to put a bow on it's just that to your point notre dame just outplayed tennessee and that's kind of what was most impressive to me is it's not like like notre dame did find some advantages maybe some advantages were handed to them with the suspensions however um, it's not like Tennessee went out and played their D minus game. It's not like we were like, holy moly, Tennessee is just out of sorts, right? I mean, they clearly got outplayed, yes, but it's not like that version of Tennessee doesn't win a lot of other super regionals. And Notre Dame just kind of stood, you know, stood eye to eye with them and, and took them down. And that's kind of what's most most impressive about it. And um, you know, it feels with the run this team has had the last couple of years. And oh, by the way, the feeling of we will touch on this on a later show, like I'm sure like the feeling of like this might be like the a very brief era, but the real end of an era here for this Notre Dame team, both on the field and the dugout, all of that stuff um, feels fitting that this team was able to pull it off. So Joe, what Joe is obliquely referencing there is the fact that I should have mentioned this before we even got into the, the Super Regional talk is that on fl- Friday, Florida State fired Mike Martin Jr. Um, Link Jarrett is of course a florida state alum he spent some time on the coaching staff in tallahassee before moving elsewhere um he has of course been linked no pun intended immediately to this job uh we'll see there's a lot to be said about him going home um there's also a lot to be said about notre dame having pretty deep pockets and just having been shown what kind of coach they have. So we'll, we'll see where this all goes, but that is something that's going to hang over this team as long as they continue to play. Uh, they did a great job of managing it this weekend. I'm sure they'll do a great job of managing it in Omaha. They're a bunch of veteran guys. A lot has been made of how many college graduates they have on the team and everything. They, they're not going to be phased. They haven't been phased to this point. I'm, I'm sure they'll continue to, to handle it in stride, but that is another thing that is going on with this Notre Dame team. So uh, congratulations to Notre Dame first trip to Omaha since 2002 and they couldn't have picked a harder way to uh, to go out and get it done uh, okay let's um, let's move on and we'll stay in the Friday Sunday regionals uh, and we'll go to Blacksburg Virginia Tech hosted Oklahoma and Oklahoma's roadshow continued speaking about teams that have been on the road forever Oklahoma has been on the road for four straight weekends. Uh, they have not really lost many games in that time. They've lost three games in that time. They went to Lubbock and took two out of three to end the the, uh, the regular season. They swept through the Big 12 tournament. 
they lost once at Gainesville in, in winning that regional. And then they, uh, they lost once in Blacksburg, but they bounced back uh, on Sunday to win the rubber game. And Oklahoma is now going to Omaha for the first time since 2010. Joe and I, neither one of us saw this coming really at any point in the first half of the season. Joe and I both watched Oklahoma play and we're like, well, it's a pretty good team, but like, aren't they a little short on the mound? Uh, it turns out they're not. Peyton Graham's amazing. Kate Horton really stepped up. And I mean, this series wasn't compelling in any way. The, the three games, just the first game was close. And then Virginia Tech blew out Oklahoma in game two and Oklahoma returned the favor in game three. But um, yeah, so I, I didn't personally, like I was locked into this at any point over the weekend, uh, but it was, uh, it was, it was impressive the way Oklahoma went out and, and finished the thing on Sunday. Yeah, it was, um, it's a good way to put it. Like this was one and, and yes, I was at other games, you know, I was at my own Friday, Sunday, super regional. So like it, and it, it was on kind of a similar schedule to the one I was at or the, on a similar schedule to the Oklahoma, Virginia Tech, so that made it uniquely difficult to really follow along. But even if I'd had the opportunity, like this was not, not where I was probably going to spend a lot of time. And, and it really kind of followed the format that I think we thought was going to be the case there. Right. I mean, uh, Jake Bennett threw a good game in the first game that, you know, the bullpen was, was good behind him. Oklahoma wins a close game that really was, yes, it was close. I'm not trying to like say it wasn't, but it was like, jumped out to a, a pretty early lead Virginia tech kind of clawed their way back in. Couldn't quite get it done. Um, and then they trade these high scoring kind of ugly games. And I think if it, uh, based on what I had seen in Blacksburg the weekend before, I had a feeling if the series went this way, this is the way it was going to play out because I liked Jake Bennett more than I liked any starter on the Virginia tech staff because drew Hackenberg. And we talked about this before, like, it's just not the same guy right now, whether it's that, um, you know, he's just hit the freshman wall, which would be understandable uh, whether it's, you know, just the, the information is out on him. So good to the point where he's just struggling with it, whatever it is, he's just not the same guy. And he was really the only guy who was giving them Jake Bennett type results for any stretch of this season. So when you take that and then you say, okay, this is going to be an offensive series. Like I think that's advantage sooners. And I think that's exactly the way it, it played out is they were just able to kind of, especially in that finale, they were able to slow the Virginia tech offense in a way that Virginia tech's pitching was not able to do with Oklahoma's offense, either of the last two games of the series. Um, even, you know, even in winning game two, Virginia tech allowed the, the eight runs. They just kind of got it done a little bit more, but um, this is one where I think both sides like Virginia tech is disappointed. And, and there, there will be some rebuilding there, um, you know, Gavin Cross, and, and they got some older guys who are going to be moving on. But, um, you know, Oklahoma feels obviously good about it. They've been as hot as just about anybody in the country the last month or so. Um, they are going to be very dangerous in Omaha with the way they're playing. And for Virginia Tech, like I just I get the feeling when you look at some of the younger players they have on this team, Hackenberg is part of that. Carson Martini is a big part of that. I really like his game. Uh, I don't think this is going to be the last time we see Virginia Tech on this kind of stage. So while the, there is disappointment, especially losing it at home, I think given the benefit of some distance here, I think this is the type of series where both teams end up feeling okay about the way things are, are headed right in this moment. Yeah, I, I think Virginia Tech is going to be quite good next year. Tanner Schobel is, is back to, to anchor the infield. Drew Hackenberg, as you mentioned, was just a freshman. Things are moving in the right direction in Blacksburg. Uh, but good on Oklahoma for the improvement they they made over the course of the regular season. Um, 
big time NCAA tournament performances from Kendall Pettis. Um, in addition to Payne Graham, John Spikerman's been playing really well. Tanner Treadway. Uh, I mean, they're they're rolling right now, and I think they're going to be a problem in Omaha. Moving on, College Station. Uh, this was a pretty quick one as AM swept it, but they were tight games, and also the games themselves were not fast. Uh, that'll happen with uh, Jim Schlossnagel and Dan McDonald coach teams. The AM goes out and they win a pair of one run games. They had to score late in both cases, but my takeaway from this is that AM did a great job on the mound. Louisville is one of the best offenses in the country. They're playing in a pretty offensive environment. And AM was really able to do as much as you can to, to silence the Cardinals. And that, that was the difference here. I think that's right. And, and, and more specifically, it's not that they didn't get, I mean, they gave up 23 hits in two games. I mean, Louisville had 13 hits in the finale compared to AM having five. I think it's just understanding that, hey, you're going to give up hits to this team. Like you're never going to go in, especially with, with A&M on the mound. It's not like, I mean, they're a team that is very much not working with a traditional ace, right? And so you just know you're going to go in and they're, you're going to give up hits. The name of the game is minimizing. And they did a really nice job of minimizing the, the rallies that Louisville was able to put together. I mean, Louisville scored early in both games. And then from there on, A&M just kind of was able to keep them at bay, even though there was traffic on the bases and they were seemed like they were constantly fighting out of, you know, this or that type of, um, type of, uh, um, tight spot. Um, so kudos to the bullpen there, because that's a lot of what it was for AM was, was bullpen work. And, uh, Jacob Palish threw in, in both games, Brad Rudis as a freshman threw really well in, in the, in the second game. Um, so I think it was just a really good understanding of what they were going to have to do. Like, you're not going to be perfect. Don't worry about being perfect. Just go out there and kind of compete and battle. And I think they probably thought they were going to get a little more offense. I would imagine. Um, I don't think they probably anticipated, Hey, if you give up, uh, four and three runs respectively, that you're going to have to win one run games. I think that would have made them feel a little uncomfortable, but they managed it. Yeah. They, uh, left a ton of runners on base in game one. Um, Louisville pitched, uh, Louisville's bullpen did a good job as well. Uh, two tense games, just, uh, Louisville on the, the short end. They, uh, they can feel very good about, you know, the fact that after missing regionals last year, they got right back on the horse and they're back in super regionals and, um, everyone that doubted them like was that includes us coming into the season was reminded of, of what Louisville is and, and what they're about. So, I think they can uh, feel good about the season. I know a Louisville season that doesn't end in Omaha right now probably can't feel that great, but but in this specific case, I think they can they can be happy that uh, about the way they went out and, and competed. And as Dan McDonald said, reset like that program expectations. With not, by the way, with not a team that's going to be remembered as like one of the more talented Louisville teams, right? No, Dalton very rushing players, is like but... a potential first rounder, but it's not like they've they've had plenty of years where they have like four guys drafted in the top fifty. That's that's not this team. All right, let's go to Greenville, where Joe spent this weekend. Um, ECU hosting a super regional for the first time at Clark Leclaire. They jump out to a lead. They did what we said they needed to do. They beat Pete Hansen on Friday afternoon. They then got a pretty sizable lead on Saturday, and it looked like for a second 
like maybe ECU is actually going to go to Omaha. Uh, in the end, the, the second half of this series, though, was all about Texas. Uh, once they started mounting that comeback, they just like ECU just apparently ran out of pitching midway through the second game. And Texas was more than happy to take advantage and uh, rolled right on through. They win the finale uh, 11 to 1. Uh, rain really marred that game and they didn't end until like two in the morning uh on on monday but uh nevertheless texas going back to omaha yeah it was uh reminiscent you feel for ecu they're so close again this one felt fairly reminiscent of the 2016 lubbock super regional where ecu won the opener lost the second game in 13 innings and then got blown out in the third game that this was pretty similar to that added Adding to the extra pain, though, of this one was in Greenville in front of great crowds, just absolutely juiced up atmosphere, record crowds the first two days of the, of the Super Regional. It might have ended up as a record crowd in the third game, too, but because, as Teddy had mentioned, because of the rain and, you know, the way they they, they don't really count attendance until after the fact and all that. So the, I, I don't know what the official attendance was on that, but I, I don't I don't know that it was another record setting crowd, but it might have been had it not been the situation that, that they were in, which which, by the way, quickly, I don't want to belabor this too much, but. The game was delayed an hour. And then we're going to try to start it when it was clear we were never finishing that game. So like ECU clearly had bigger problems. Like, so Texas getting out to a four, nothing lead five batters in, and then having the game go into another delay for five hours um, is not the reason ECU lost, but like, it's just is a really bad look. And so I am really confused as to why that was allowed to happen. That happened um, in Statesboro in the regional round between Notre Dame and Texas tech as well, where they started a game that got delayed within the first inning. I like that just shouldn't be happening. And like, I understand there was, there were some that were really frustrated. Like, why wasn't this game another noon start? And like, that is frustrating because the weather was such that they could have started at noon and gotten the game over and probably done it. So without a problem. So that is frustrating. It's just that those window decisions don't, when they decide what slot to time slot to put those games in the day before, they're not looking at the the forecast and really doing that measurement. Now, should they? Maybe, but that's just not really the way it's done. Day of, like, sure, maybe we can move some stuff around. We'll delay some stuff. We'll, what have you. But like day before when they're slotting those games in, they're looking at TV windows, like for better or worse. Um, weather is not really a primary part of that discussion. So anyway, moving on though. Um not only did they get to Pete Hansen and win the opening game, like they really did a good job with Lucas Gordon. Like they did the things that we said they were going to need to do. And it was a seven to two lead going into the seventh inning stretch. And then it was one way traffic, you know, Texas mounts a comeback. And there was like a brief shining moment where, you know, Texas goes up eight, seven in the second game going to the ninth, Jacob Starling hits like a, a towering home run for ECU to tie at eight, eight. And you think, okay, there actually maybe is still some magic left here. And then Texas just walks it off in the ninth. Um, it was just a real like air out of the balloon moment. Um, you know, they said all the right things in post game to DCU about, you know, if you told us the beginning of the year, we'd have one game at home to get to Omaha, we take it. And I believe them, by the way, I think a lot of teams would take that. Right. But what if you gave them that scenario in the seventh inning though, of the previous game, like they're obviously not taking that because they'd rather just close out the seven to two lead. So just a crushing loss in that way for ECU. And again, after the game on the finale, you know, when I, when I saw some of the quotes there, um, 
again, the right things were said, but you just know that's just a tough, tough loss there for ECU. And I think a couple of things here, I think one Texas's experience and expectations to be there played into it. They just were so calm, cool, and collected the whole weekend. They looked, they looked and sounded unflappable. They just had like a assuredness about them that I think really played into their hand. And then second of all, ECU deserves a lot of credit for what they've, they've done on the mound. I mean, they've been without Carson Wisenhunt from the beginning. Their most experienced starter is Jake Kuchmaner, and he's been on the shelf for most of the season and hasn't been himself. Um, they've really had to bullpen game it from the very beginning. CJ Mayhew has had some nice moments, but there's been a lot of short starts there too. So they've been just completely doing bullpen games for the most part for weeks now, and they've done a really nice job with it. I just think it got to a point where against a really good offense in Texas and having to do that for as long as it did, I think it just caught up to them. And I think having to manage games like that is so mentally, physically, emotionally taxing. It was, and you throw in a really good offense in Texas. And I just think that was, it was just too much like that. They found the limit of them being able to win games that way. I mean, and for as much as Texas's bullpen has been, maligned at, at points this season they're, they're really good arms out there like the the arms they're throwing just to cover innings in in game one when it was over were still like mid-90s arms and so I mean that lets you know a thing or two about the depth that they're working with and we talk coming in about how good their offense is like this is just a really good Texas team and you know it's not like they were underseeded because the middle part of that season did happen where they lost those series but on talent, that was not the ninth best team in the tournament. On talent, you know, there's a reason why they're the number one team in the country coming into the year. And I think all of that just just came to bear. And um, they're going to be a problem in Omaha. Um, you know, I the, the Omaha bracket, and we'll obviously get into this plenty uh, on, on the second podcast of the week, but it's open. And it's very open on that side of the bracket. It's going to be very competitive and, and we'll, we'll see where it lands, but Texas is going to go to Omaha feeling very good about themselves uh, the way they came back in the series and, and the talent that they have to go out and, and potentially win this thing. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. If you need to hire, you need indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. 
Medela, the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. All right, so we're back. Let's flip to the Saturday through Monday Supers. Uh, and let's start in Stanford. Stanford, number two overall seed, Drew Yukon uh, in this Super. And oh boy, was this a roller coaster ride of a, of a Super. Um, UConn blitzed Pac-12 Pitcher of the Year, Alex Williams, on Saturday. Uh, got up nine nothing in the first two innings and rode that out despite the fact that Stanford hit eight home runs in the game and scored six runs in the bottom of the ninth to turn this into a 13 to 12 win. Um, Stanford's comeback forced UConn to use just about all of their top bullpen arms in that game. I don't know how much that factored into the rest of the series, but certainly that was significant and probably just more from a moral morale standpoint uh, momentum standpoint for Stanford. They definitely had it coming out of this game, despite the fact that they lost. They then blitzed UConn ace Austin Peterson um, on Saturday, rode that out to an 8-2 win. And then in game three, UConn gets up in the, the top of the first. They score three runs, but Stanford comes right back and scores a couple runs in the bottom part of the inning and goes on to a pretty comfortable 10 to five win ultimately. And Stanford is now going back to Omaha for the second straight year. First back-to-back trips to Omaha for the Cardinal since they went five straight times at the turn of the century. This super regional kind of feels like um, one where you don't take anything away from UConn. I mean, UConn was a very good team that was ready for this moment. and, And clearly they had a a real good game plan against Alex Williams or, you know, whatever it was, but they, I mean, they really came out and like you said, did it, did a number on him. It's just one of those deals where had Alex Williams just been kind of an average version of himself, much less than a, you know, an above average or excellent version of himself. Like this strikes me as the kind of super regional that was over, would have been over like very quickly. And we wouldn't have thought anything much of it and would have been like, well, UConn was a good story, but clearly they weren't weren't quite ready for this, but that was that one thing UConn getting to Alex Williams for the way they did really stretched this super into uh, precarious territory for Stanford. And, and really in Monday's game, Stanford wrestled control back pretty quickly, but UConn scored three in the first and was threatening for more. And seemed like they really could have landed a, a haymaker there and just couldn't I quite think the do bases it. were loaded with nobody out. Yeah. I mean, it, they, it was a real, like, uh, you know, uh, Houdini act for, for Stanford there to not have it be more than three, nothing. And who knows if, 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 if it ends up being, you know, something more like five or six, nothing, because as it was, like I said, Stanford kind of wrestled control back pretty quickly and, and imposed themselves in this game. And it turned into a, a score that maybe wasn't a game that maybe wasn't as even as close as 10 to five would lead you to, um, to believe there. So, uh, boy, talk about roller coaster rides. Stanford is probably going to be one in Omaha, uh, but they are very dangerous offensively. And we'll have to see what they get on the mound. We'll talk about that in the preview episode. But but as it was here, it just seemed like they, they had, you know, a really bad start to the Saturday game. And that ended up making this a lot hairier than I think it it truly should have been for the Cardinal. 
Stanford hit like 12 home runs in this, this super. And like, all, there's a lot been made of how offense has been up and home runs have been up and all the rest of it. But just the, first of all, Stanford's offense is really good at a baseline. Like we knew that coming into the season that it was going to be really good, but seeing the ball fly out of the, uh, out of sunken diamond like that time. And again was, uh, I mean, it was, it was kind of crazy and I'm going to be very interested to see how that plays in Omaha. Uh, but, but for this weekend, I mean, Tommy Troy hit some, hit some absolute bombs and I mean, it's Felt like everyone uh, for for Stanford was 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 hitting some home runs. Uh, Cody Huff destroyed a grand slam on um, on Monday that really ended that game, and uh, th- that offense is is clicking on all cylinders right now. Yeah, no doubt. They've, they've we'll talk about this in the preview show again, uh, but they've that offense has gotten better as the season has gone on, as they've had other guys be a little bit more a part of it. And so that that's, I mean, that's really kind of what makes them the most dangerous right now is that it could be absolutely anybody in that lineup. The UConn of it all, Joe, uh, let's put a bow on them. They win a whole bunch of games. They get to, to supers for, for the second time, first time since, uh, since 2011. Um, what, what does that mean for this program moving forward and, and, and just, I guess the, the legacy of, of what this UConn team is. I mean, I think it shows that you don't have to be as hyper talented as they were during the 2011 run, which we detailed on the preview episode in order for this program to get to this stage. And now if they want to be that talented, like, great, I'm sure, I'm sure Chip Binders would happily take that, but this is this was not an overly talented UConn team, even relative to UConn, and and not even just relative to that 2011 team. And they still managed to get here. And look, is their path relatively narrow in the Big East? Yes. Are they basically going to have to be, you know, Gonzaga basketball year to year? Now that's a different level, but I'm just saying in terms of like, they're not going to get a lot of help in their conference. Yeah, I guess Gonzaga basketball saying. 10 years ago, not so much Gonzaga right. basketball today. Right. They're not going to get any help in their conference, really. So they're going to have to either a schedule out of it, which is hard because of where they are geographically. We, or we saw what really... happened to that this year. They they tried, and their schedule still was like two hundredth. Yes, or they're going to have to more likely just run roughshod over the Big East, which is what they did this year. So it is a narrow path to the postseason, but this is a team that always seems to figure that out. And like, yes, it was a little easier in the American, but even in the big East, like they're figuring it out. They're getting there first couple of years. I suspect that will continue to happen. Um, They really do seem like a program that is just really at this point, like clicking on all cylinders knows who they are. They're getting some help now with the new ballpark. Like that can only continue to help. It's, it's, you know, let's not forget that like that should still continue to help in recruiting and things like that. There is theoretically another level for this program to get to with the help of, of something like the new ballpark. So um, I don't think this will be the last time they'll be here. We just always have to understand that the, the path for them is pretty narrow. They're probably going to be under talented relative to the teams they go up against. So they're almost always going to be an underdog story, at least at this juncture. Um but this, this, I think this run showed this is a program, not just a team. This is a program capable of doing this basically any year. And that's just a great testament to what they built there. I wish that they had gotten, that, that they'd been able to break through. I think it would have been great to have a Big East team in Omaha. Um, 
just kind of as a reminder to everyone in that conference about what is possible there. Like, you know, Creighton doesn't, I don't think Creighton needs the reminder as, as the host of, of the college world series, clearly college baseball is always going to mean something to that university. Um, but you know, you, you've seen Georgetown make some strides this year under Edwin Thompson. Uh, we've seen what Xavier's capable of. We know what St. John's historically is capable of. Like this was not a good season. Last year was not a good season for the Red Storm. But I maybe if UConn had been able to break through, everyone in that conference would have just been like, "Oh right, like we are the Big East. We can we can leverage some of this stuff." And maybe what the, the run that UConn has been on, like we'll still show them that. But I I just would love to see the Big East be a bit bigger. Uh, of a player in in college baseball that's going to take some investment um not necessarily at a place like Creighton or UConn they're already pretty well invested but but at some of these other schools um if they want to they want to improve they need they need the investment but I mean like Villanova has this huge national brand I would love to see them uh, I, I I assume by now it's a, a pretty big national brand thanks to what they've done on, on the basketball court. Georgetown, like I would love to see these places leverage their brands a bit more uh, in baseball because I, I think there is still room for growth for for the conference and hopefully we'll we'll continue to see that and, and UConn can help spur some of that on for the, the other schools in that league. All right, let's move to Corvallis. I'll get off the soapbox. Uh, Oregon State hosting Auburn. This also went three games. Auburn prevails in the end. Auburn won on Friday night, despite only getting two outs from their starting pitcher. Their bullpen held Oregon State to one run over eight and a third. Uh, and that was that was good enough. Cooper Jerky started the second game for Oregon State. He was sick. That's why he didn't start the first game. Uh, but Oregon State won one Jerky start. Jerky and Ben Ferrer combined to hold Auburn to five hits. Uh, to even the series. And then the, the third game was a, a nice tight affair. Auburn is able to pull it out, however, and the Tigers are going to Omaha for the second time in three seasons. Yeah, it was kind of nice uh, to see some well-pitched games, like <laughs> or at least low-scoring games. Um, it was just a nice change of pace given what was happening a lot, what has been happening in a lot of places over the last couple of weekends. So that was kind of nice. And yeah, I mean, we will we will talk about you know kind of the 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 SEC West uh, overtaking of, of the correct. Uh, yeah, I was just kind of struggling to find the right wording there, but yes, that's a good way to put it. Um, at another time, I'm sure, but just the idea that that Auburn was what we expected them to be or not be, as it as it were, and they are here is incredible. It just shows kind of, I think it shows what a grind the SEC West is that iron does sharpen iron. Um, even in a year when I think we would agree that, you know, it wasn't the best year in the league necessarily, but the, the level is just so high in that league that any team that comes out of it and gets a crack, you know, a bite at the apple basically can get there. And they've also found some things, right? I mean, they, they, I don't want to say it was luck. They had to recruit him and stuff, but like they clearly hit on, <laughs> Sonny Deshara in a way that they probably could not have even imagined. And Brooks Carlson from Sanford has been pretty, pretty nice too. And they've patched things together on the mound. And I mean, they've got guys with real stuff too. I feel like we, we talk about Auburn's struggles in the mound and at least I'm guilty sometimes of like, 
you know, uh, making some assumptions about what they have left on the mound, but then you've got like, you know, Mason Barnett blowing like 97 mile an hour heaters past people. It's like, okay, well, there's still some stuff here. The offense has been really good, even beyond Deshera. Like they've, they've found some pieces there. They've got some veteran guys who have been around forever in that lineup. So it just seems like a, a well-constructed team from a lot of different places, like an erector set of a team a little bit. And the other thing I'll say um, is that we talked about this on an episode earlier this season when it became clear that Auburn was going to be something like this, that, you know, you and I, Teddy and I, we, sometimes we like to pretend we know, but we really don't know like largely who's doing other than looking at results, who's doing a good coaching job, who's doing a bad coaching job, who's actually effective, an effective coach, who's not, how much is it the program, the money that's put in, how much is it a player led program? Like we cannot accurately gauge what percentage of credit to give a coach for a team's success. We, we are not in those locker rooms. We are not on those fields. We can guess, but we do not know. However, I am confident in saying that Butch Thompson is one of the guys I would, you know, bet my bottom dollar on his teams are just going to um, figure it out and like, okay, yeah, the year before your prior 2021 didn't go great, but otherwise his teams have, exceeded expectations just about in every case. And it's not like exceeding expectations, like getting two regionals, which for Auburn historically is actually kind of exceeding expectations by being in regionals as much as they have been, but to get to this program to Omaha for a second time in that short of a span is just incredible success. So, you know, in a world where I'm not willing to really bet much on like how much the coach matters, because I just don't know, like I am willing to bet there is a Butch Thompson effect here. Um, actually not even willing to bet. I just know there is a Butch Thompson effect here. And he's one of the few guys I think we can be confident in saying that about. Every single year, every single year, except for 2021, Auburn has exceeded expectations. They were picked last in the SEC West preseason coaches poll. I am picking last. I think I picked AM last. Let's not talk about that. I, I picked them sixth. But the coaches, the coaches picked this team last. They finished terribly last year. Like they they were not good in 2021. They are going to Omaha. Um I I just it it, it has been a remarkable run for them. And yeah, as long as Butch is there I don't see any reason why it won't continue. Like they have, they, they have done just an incredible job. Uh, Tim Hudson and Butch did an incredible job with this pitching staff, which lost Hayden Mullins at some point this season due to injury, like doesn't have a legit Friday guy. Does, I mean, Blake Burkhalter is probably the second best reliever in the sec. Um, And as far as like, traditional and air quotes closers go like maybe the best in the sec but you know they don't have it's not like this pitching staff is loaded for bear that they pitch really well though um you know sunny deshara is getting on base half the time more than half the times he steps to the plate like he like they just do so many things well they're so hard to beat and that's what oregon state found out this weekend and you know we'll uh we'll see what auburn has in Omaha, but yeah, to your point, Joe, to, to get Auburn, uh, a, a place that went go, traditionally has gone pretty long times in between regional appearances, to get them uh, to Omaha twice in three three seasons is, uh, is is very loud. Oregon State, on the other hand, uh, finishes the season disappointingly short of Omaha. 
for a lot of this year, it looked like Tennessee and Oregon State and then the field. And in the end, neither one is going to Omaha. Oregon State just didn't feel right for the last month. Don't quite know what to put that down to. But in, in the end, they uh, they do fall short on their home field here. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of grasping to put it any better than that because I think that's exactly what I would have said there with Oregon State is it just they it just hasn't quite felt right the last month or six weeks maybe and we've kind of diagnosed some of that as okay some of the pitching has backslid a little bit I, if we look under the hood I'm sure we'll see that the the offense has been the same um, but I don't really have any sort of like real um, specific diagnoses to give on Oregon State just that it just hasn't felt quite right and I think we saw that manifest um, this weekend where they were, they were real close, right? I mean, these were not blowouts. They were real close and they just couldn't quite get it over the finish line. And, you know, they, this team dealt with some injuries of their own, you know, they all do. Um, I still like the direction of the program under Canham. They're, uh, they're good. They've got a good, a lot of good young talent. Uh, I am sure they'll be back, but, uh, the last, this was the first time they'd lost a home super regional. Um, the last time they were in the at, at home in the NCAA tournament, they lost a regional. Um, probably nothing to read into that at all. Two different coaching staffs, two different teams, but uh, just Goss has not been the fortress uh, lately that it, it had been under Pat Casey. Moving on, uh, let's go to Hattiesburg, where Southern Miss was hosting. Ole Miss. Oh boy, this one, <laughs> this one, more than any of them, just felt like over as soon as it started in some respects. That's really unfair to Southern Miss. Uh, but Southern Miss didn't score in this weekend at home. Ole Miss won 10 to nothing. Uh, game one came back and won the second game five to nothing. Ole Miss has pitched at a completely different level uh, once the postseason started. It's been incredibly impressive to watch. Uh, massively disappointing weekend for Southern Miss. Anytime Southern Miss felt like they were close, and there were times that they felt like they were that they were very close to breaking through. They had the bases loaded uh, in the first game. They felt like they hit a grand slam. The ball did go foul, just barely. Ole Miss escapes that inning and then immediately punches back with runs of their own. And that was kind of it. And it, that happened a couple of times throughout the weekend that Southern Miss comes close. Ole Miss escapes. Ole Miss punches back with runs immediately. And uh, that that's just how it went. And, uh, and Ole Miss is now going to Omaha for the first time since 2014. A lot to unpack here, Joe. Uh, let's start with Southern Miss, though. Um, you love Conference USA. This uh, th- this one really stains for them and for the conference, I would say. Yeah, I mean, because this team was this team was really built in such a way that you thought, like, oh, you know, like this is a team that could go toe to toe with a big brand, even a team better than Ole Miss. I mean, let's be honest, Ole Miss has been very, very good lately, but like there are tougher teams on paper they could have come up against, I guess. Uh, I mean, but, they beat LSU a week ago, and yeah, LSU, I mean, right. did get swept by Ole Miss and Baton Rouge, but did also finish ahead of them in the SEC standings. So you just with the pitching depth they had too, because it's not like we see mid-major teams that like have a real guy on Friday and it's like, okay, well, yeah, they're, but once they get past that, what do they have? Like, no, this team has three legit rotation pieces. 
has a whole bunch of bullpen guys throwing like 95. Um, and yeah, the offense is like this, them scoring zero runs like that specific piece of the puzzle is disappointing, but there was a scenario where they just don't score much and they were just going to have to outpitch Ole Miss. We kind of knew that was on the table, but it was, it's a pretty veteran offense, right? I mean, you know, Montenegro, the, the brothers, Montenegro, if you will, Gabe, obviously being the, the veteran one there, but Will McGillis and Sargent and, and, you know, um, guys like that. I mean, I could, there, there are several others, but Danny Lynch, that was one of the names I was trying to grab there. Um, but it's a, it was a veteran enough offense. I thought, okay, they're going to scrap for some stuff. They'll get enough done offensively. And it just never happened. And it, it, so, but going into it, you just kind of thought with, with, okay, with that veteran team on the position player side, they're pretty steady defensively. They're not super athletic, but they're steady. And the pitching they have is just so overwhelming. Like this team is built like a power conference team in a lot of ways. And it just, it just, this, this weekend just wasn't it. They were just flat. It, it felt like the, the, the review on the grand slam in game one, which I was, I was listening to it in my car driving back from Greenville when that play was being reviewed and happening. And it, it just felt like such a big moment. Like obviously in the moment it's, it's a big moment, but it just felt like the, in the bigger picture was even bigger because it just felt like Ole Miss or I'm sorry, Southern Miss was never in it after that point. And the air just completely talk about air going out of the balloon. Like that felt like an air out of the balloon moment there. Um, and it was ended up being the super regional, like I alluded to in the beginning. It ended up being the super regional that's just as kind of in the blink of an eye, it's over. And like you did the did it even happen, you know? Um, and that's that that really stinks for Southern Miss because it's a program that look, they've been to Omaha once before in 09, but going there twice, like that puts you in a different pantheon. Um, you know, that also is you can start to recruit to that. You can, you know, there was an opportunity here for Southern Miss as they move to the Sun Belt, which should be a very good conference in baseball to really kind of maybe get its program to another level because they've, they've kind of been in this space. Now they hadn't been to a super in a while, but they've kind of been generally in this kind of space. And this was an opportunity to elevate themselves. And it, it just feels like a miss and that's, that's disappointing for them. And they will be back. I have no doubts about this program staying power. Um, you know, even in the short term, because a lot of these guys, there are some veteran pieces, but a lot of these guys will come back. Um, I, so I don't have any doubts about that. It's just that this felt like a team that was built for Omaha. It felt like a team that could go toe to toe. It had legit pitching talent in a way that that's usually the shortcoming of the mid-major darling is that what do you have pitching depth wise? This team had it and it, it, whether it was a bad matchup with Ole Miss because of the familiarity, because Ole Miss is scalding hot, all of the above or something else. Like it felt like the combination of that and them just not really playing particularly well offensively over the weekend, just conspired to, to end this team's run short of, of where they hoped. Southern Miss had seven hits this weekend. Um, that's not going to get it done. Um, obviously, giving up 15 runs in two games, also not going to get done. It just it just wasn't good. And I suspect the matchup was particularly terrible for them. But, like, look, you don't get to choose your matchups. And in theory, they got the worst team in the field, right? They got the last team that got put in the field or one of the last four that got put in the field by the committee. Um you would, you would generally like your chances. It's just their unfortunate luck that that last team happened to be a very hot and b an in-state like major conference foe. Like that, that's just a bad scenario, I think, for Southern Miss and um, did not work out for them. Ole Miss, meanwhile, I, uh, you know, this is a team that in the middle of the year. 
I like, I think at one point Mike Bianco said that he was giving up on starting pitching in a traditional sense. Uh, I certainly wrote that like, if they don't fix the pitching, they're never going anywhere. Well, they fixed the pitching. Uh, they, they pitched incredibly well this, this weekend, again, just seven hits allowed, uh, freshman Hunter Elliott really stepped up in a big way. Dylan DeLucha stepped up in a big way. I just top to bottom, anyone they brought in this weekend was, was throwing the ball really well. They didn't have to go very deep into their staff and that's important because they don't go terribly deep, but only, this is only the third time that a team has been shut out in super regionals. And the fact that it was this Ole Miss pitching staff that did it, like, I mean, I, if you had told me that in, in April, in March, I, I mean, no chance I would have believed it. Yeah. I mean, uh, to, to quote the, um, when, when, uh, cousin Eddie shows up in, in Christmas vacation and, uh, Clark Griswold said that I would have been more surprised. I wouldn't be even more surprised if my head, I woke up with my head stapled to the carpet. Like if you'd have told me back when Ole Miss was, really fighting it on the mound that they'd win a super regional. And if you told me it was Southern Miss, I guess like, okay, well that is the best offense, but still, I mean, to give up seven hits and to win a super sweep, a super regional to get to Omaha, like all of that information, I would not, I, I only would have been more surprised by waking up with my head stapled to the carpet. Like just it's, I mean, you know, great for the, the, the guys who cover Ole Miss locally and the, the guys we've shouted out several times in the show that do a great job doing it. Like, the stories about this team are going to be just endless. So like it's a gold mine of, of good stories to come out of this program in the last six weeks or so, because this was, they were dead in the water. They were done. They were done. They were seven and 14 in the sec going nowhere pitching. They couldn't figure out the offense was one-sided, right? I mean, they could still hit home runs, but they were having a lot of games. Where they would score, you know, four runs on five hits because all four runs came on home runs and nobody was on base. Like, so it's not just the, I mean, yes, the pitching was the worst part, but the offense also went stagnant, especially when Kevin Graham wasn't around. It just was a nothing team in the middle of the season and to get where they are now. And Oh, by the way, because of the way they're playing, because of the way the field has opened up, like this team could win a national title. Sure. Um, you know, we'll say that a lot. I'm sure in a preview episode, because this is a wide open field, but like, my goodness, to have as much of a live shot as they do winning a national title now is, is just absolutely incredible. Yeah. I I just can't say enough about this, this, the way that they recalibrated and and reset and and, and got back on track. Like you're right. They were dead in the water. Um, This is a team that was ranked number one in the country at one point. Uh, at the time, you and I didn't feel great about ranking them number one, and Tennessee immediately showed us how dumb we were to have not ranked Tennessee number one at the time, and have ranked Ole Miss instead. Uh, but they were the number one team in the country, and the fall from that was massive, and it happened in a hurry, and there was a whole lot of just negativity swirling around the program locally. Um, somehow some way Mike Bianco dragged this team out of it. And this veteran group of guys dragged themselves out of it. And, you know, they found a way to reset getting Kevin Graham back healthy was certainly a part of that. Finding the right combination on the mound was certainly a part of that, but uh, this is not the same team that was, you know, getting swept by Alabama in Ole Miss uh, or in Oxford. I I should say that it's just, it's a different team. And more power to them. I, I just can't say enough about the job that 
the leadership, whether we're talking about coaches or captains or whoever, uh, did with this team to um, to get them to this point. And uh, it's just all the more remarkable knowing all of the all of the talk that was that was going on about what's wrong with Ole Miss and like should there be a coaching change and like why can't Ole Miss ever figure anything out? You know all the rest of it. And um, here they are in Omaha for the first time since since 2014. All right, one more of these. Let's go to Chapel Hill. UNC was playing Arkansas, and Arkansas swept this one. Um, they uh, they won a couple of uh, very tight games. They won four to one on Saturday behind Connor Nolan, just a command Connor Nolan performance. Uh, put UNC down from the get go, and UNC just wasn't able to fight back. Game two was a little different. Uh, it was it was tight the whole way through. There was a rain delay thrown there in the middle. Uh, UNC playing as the road team because it was game two of the Super that they were hosting, uh, pushed ahead in the ninth inning. They couldn't get more than one run, though, in the ninth. And uh, that was their undoing as Arkansas bounced right back and scored two in the bottom of the ninth to walk it off and go back to Omaha. Uh, Pretty significant here. Arkansas looked dead in the water themselves not terribly long ago. They played terribly in Hoover. They didn't play very well a couple weeks leading into Hoover. Uh, they got it together last week in Stillwater. They go on the road. They beat UNC. Uh, and for a team that obviously suffered a, a crushing blow a year ago in Super Regionals, for them to kind of flip that script this year is uh, uh, it's not a feel-good story, but it's, uh, you know, it's something. You know, they say there, there is that thought, and we could <clears> – <throat> We could sit here and list off the the, the options, but just just take our or the um, the examples, but just take our word for it that there is a thing to like. It's usually not your best team that has your best result. It's kind of like the team after the team, or you know what have you. Um, I'm just saying, you know, like th- let me let me just uh, say, I do not subscribe to that theory. Like, yes, there are plenty of of uh, of of examples. Like it was 2013 UCLA that won, not 2011, 20. 20- you know, 15 Virginia, not 2014 or whatever that one was. And uh, 2018 or 2017 Florida, not 2016 or 2018. And, uh, you know, on and on. But uh, let me go on record. I, I don't buy into that for a second. Well, fair enough. You heard it first year, Arkansas. You got no shot. So <laughs> I'm not saying Sorry, Arkansas guys. has no shot. I'm just saying that, like, the theory on that, I guess, is what? That you know, the, the pressure of the moment is off you now. And like, you get the experience, but not the pressure, but like you also do it without the best players. Like this is Arkansas without the ability to turn to Kevin cops and Patrick Wicklander. Like, am I really here to believe that the experience that Jalen battles and Robert Moore and whatever got and, and the, the heartbreak that they got from a year ago is, is going to fuel them more than having Kevin cops and Patrick Wicklander on the mound would like, I don't buy it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that I fully subscribe to it either. It just hap- has, it happens often enough though, that like, I do think we need, we have to engage with it seriously in some way and try to like, even if we end up saying like, yeah, probably not. Like, I think it is an interesting thing because there are enough recent examples, right? We're not looking back at like, you know, uh, you know, 1994 Oklahoma or something like that. that that's another thing it, is it is a very much a thing of the last decade. I don't know. Like, are there examples from the previous decade? Like that's something that I would want to look into. Yeah. Anyway, regardless, um, you know, I talked about uh, on the preview episode, we, we talked about it wasn't just a me thing. We, we talked about um, 
Arkansas is a program that just kind of knows how to win in the postseason, tends to do a good job in the postseason. I mean, obviously, the super regional loss last year, notwithstanding. Um, and so I, I do think there are some program and cultural things that kind of help them in situations like this, where they're, they're, you know, maybe under talented from where they would like to be, or the talent has at least underperformed for much of the season. Um, and I think that's kind of what we saw here. I mean, individually, some great stuff there. You mentioned Connor Noland. I was impressed by that. I kind of thought Connor Noland is a guy who could do that kind of thing. Like I kind of thought that maybe this year that was over, maybe the, you know, he was slowing down or maybe the book was out or, or the magic is gone, whatever it was that gave him that really hot start felt like it faded. And he was still a guy who was going to give you a nice competitive start. Don't get me wrong. But the idea that he could go out there and throw six and two thirds shutout against a good team like North Carolina, I thought maybe those days had passed us this year. So to do that is really impressive. I think it sets him up well heading to Omaha and in that second game, boy, in a great example of just how life is tough in the postseason and things can change in an instant is that, you know, North Carolina grabs, it's a two, two game, North Carolina as the road team in that second game, you know, grabs a three, two lead on a Patrick Alvarez RBI single. And again, this was a game I happened to be listening to at that specific moment on the drive. Like the crowd is going crazy. It sounds like a great atmosphere. Everyone's kind of in early celebration mode. And then you get to the bottom of that inning and Arkansas just walks them off. And like, that's how it goes. <laughs> like, and just like that, North Carolina season's over, Arkansas moves on. So um, but there again, there's a moment, a big moment in the postseason, and Arkansas was just able to um, be there in that moment and get it done in that moment. And I just don't think, like, talk about things that are you really can't uh, put your finger on or things you can't quantify, like Arkansas coming through in moments like that tends to happen. Um, and it's a good program, it's a good reason for that, but... Uh, th those types of moments tend to go Arkansas's way. And so it was, yes, it was a surprise in the moment to see things shift that quickly on North Carolina, but that Arkansas would find a way in a game like that was not a surprise to me. Yeah, I would, I would generally agree with that. And um, you know, this is an Arkansas team and coaching staff that has plenty of postseason experience. And we talked about, you know, how much uh, last year they seem to find ways and this year they weren't finding ways. Well, it, it, it does seem the last couple of weeks that they have their back to, to their, their clutch gene ways or, you know, whatever. Um, and that's significant going into Omaha. They're, they're coming in with a big head of steam. Uh, they're going to have a lot of belief and, you know, again, everyone in Omaha is going to feel like they've got a shot for North Carolina. I don't really know how to take this. Uh, on the one hand, you would say like, all right, we went, 500 in the ACC and we made it to super regionals. We'll just chalk that up as a big success in year two of Scott Forbes. And it was a relatively a team on the, on the younger side, like, you know, we're, we're in a good spot. On the other hand, um, you might say like, well, we went out and, you know, we had a home super regional and we lost in two games. Like that's, that's not great. So I, I don't know where the overall feeling is. I think it should be, tend more on the like, okay, yeah, you were 500 in the ACC, but figured some things out in the second half. You went out, you won the ACC tournament, you got to super regionals, you hosted super regionals, even although that was just kind of by luck. Um, and yeah, you, you have overall a younger roster. Like I, I, I think that there's a lot of building blocks here. Vance Honeycutt is a superstar uh, that you're going to have on campus for the next couple of years. I think it's a, a very positive thing, but I, I also do see the flip side of a, kind of a missed opportunity 
uh, for UNC. And, and now they are, they've lost their last two super regionals, both of which coming at home in, in the last three seasons. Yeah, I, I think um, I'm with you and that not quite sure how to take it. I mean, obviously when you, when you're going to come back with, you know, chief among the reasons for optimism, Vance Honeycutt, who is going to go into next year is, is one of the best players in the country. Um, that's obviously a great building block to start with and you'll work from there. Um, but I'm generally kind of with you in that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's another postseason exit. And I do think there is something to like this group of players really. Um, while there were some guys who were around back in the, the 2018 college world series appearance, like it's mostly a, a team that's got to campus since then. And th- the fact that they were able to kind of, um, figure it out and, and get to this point, I think is, is, is a positive that you can take with you. It's, it's another class of players that kind of has something to, at the end there to be really proud of and that they've, they kind of salvaged a season that, that looked like it might be lost kind of like, uh, you know, last season was, um, even though they got to regionals last year, that, that felt more like a season that just like, um, ended with a little bit more of a thud. This feels a little bit different, even though you're only one stage further in the postseason. So, uh, you can kind of hear me talking around it. I'm not really sure exactly how to feel about it either, but I think if you're Carolina, you, you go into it saying, you know what, we were real close. We didn't, we didn't get blown out in our, against Arkansas. We lost two games. So I get it, but we've got young talent here. We got back to the stage. It was a step up from 2021. I think there's enough positive there to feel pretty optimistic going into next season. But you know, if I were in their shoes, I'd be cautiously so versus rapidly. So I would say. Of the teams that lost home Super Regionals, I think they probably have the most to feel good about. Uh, I think everyone else probably has to view it as a bigger missed opportunity than UNC does, um, even if UNC might not be, you know, I don't know where they're going to be ranked going into next year versus like uh, Oregon State or something, but I, I do think that they have the, of the teams that lost at home this weekend, I think they're the ones that can feel best about about everything that, that went down. All right, that's all eight of them. We'll be back to preview the College World Series later in the week on Thursday. So make sure you are subscribed to Like basically it feels like five minutes from now. Oh, yes, it does. Uh, It goes back to the like, I hate this. I hate this format. (laughs) Uh, But yes, we'll be we'll be back here uh, sooner than usual to to preview the, the World Series. So make sure you are subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, wherever you can find us, hit that subscribe or follow button, and it'll uh, it'll go right into your phone there when uh, when we do post it uh, on Thursday. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA, and we will both be in Omaha for the next two weeks. So um, you know, follow along for insight. Follow along for um, whatever food finds I, I find this year in, in Omaha. Um, and I'm going to try uh, Runza this year. That's my uh, goal. I'm going to try, I'm going to give Runza a try this year. Maybe, maybe a group Runza run. Uh, maybe, maybe that'll happen. Maybe it won't. We'll see. We'll see. Um, if you're going to be out there, let us know. We'll, uh, uh, we'd love to hear hear your experiences, uh, as a fan out there. Um, so yeah, we're, we're looking forward to it. Going to be a busy two weeks ahead. Uh, so make sure you are, you are subscribed, following us on Twitter, following along on the website. Uh, where you can read everything that's baseballamerica.com and we'll uh we'll hopefully have a great time at the college world series hopefully it'll be better than last year uh because let's face it last year wasn't that great uh i know mississippi state fans loved it i don't know if anybody else did 
but hopefully this year we'll, we'll all have a better time out of Omaha. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 